Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border, to this uh, monstrosity of an episode. It's monstrous because although people who've lived through some interesting events are very valuable sources, they also often are not that good at writing. I mean, there is a reason why biographies are usually written by other folks instead of the people who live through them, and sure, there are autobiographies, but I bet you've only read the good ones is like, you know, the Churchill one and stuff like that, but wow, some people were not really born to be writers, and um, when I promised you the boat episode, I did not know what I was getting into, and this pains me. That said, let me introduce you to Yuris Dimitris, who was going to be the main hero of our story, because I am making this episode over his memoirs about how he was a double agent for both the KGB and the BDS, which was the secret agency of the German, West German um, state, on the Alexander Pushkin cruise ship that was traveling from Leningrad to Montreal during the 60s and early 70s. Our hero here, whose memories we're talking about, well, he has a background and I must talk about it before we can get to the meat of the subject, because... Otherwise, uh, nothing I say will make any sense, because, well, he has managed to make the story so personal that it gets extra convoluted if you don't understand his background. You see, he was born into a quite wealthy family that owned a carpentry workshop, and they were also minor landowners. That was in 1937, in uh, the interwar period. Apparently, his family shop was good enough as to build some furniture for a president of ours in the interwar period, Karl Sulman. Well, he was a dictator at that point, but uh, it's a complicated story that we will get to in another episode. At any rate, they, as anyone else who had or owned anything, were deemed enemies of the state in 1940, when our old buddy, whom I have neglected lately, but I, you know, trying to catch up as we speak, 
because that's my other thing that's um, a bleeding ulcer of mine in the podcast sphere. Uncle Joe! We haven't forgotten about you, man. Uncle Joe's always there. Well, Uncle Joe decided in 1940 that the Soviet Union would look better on a map with, you know, the Baltic states inside of it. Eurostat got a quick notice from friendly sources, and so he took his wife and kids to their remote countryside home, were they, while also spending some time hiding in the forest when the NKVD squads came, managed to avoid gulags. The workshop was obviously nationalized, as the Soviets like to call uh, taken away from the people and giving it to the people, the very certain people in the nomenclature. Everyone else in the family wasn't so lucky, so about everyone else and his extended family were put into the cattle trains and deported to enjoy a nice vacation in Siberia, where they most certainly were fed tasty, tasty cakes. Because what, what else would you do in gulags? And then, as though the misery wouldn't be enough, the Nazis arrived, and their remote house was used as a Wehrmacht Frontier HQ. Which, by the way, is another interesting subject, talking about Frontier HQ places. Now, this is uh, sort of related, because about 30 kilometers from Ludza, where I live now, in Moldova, there is a moonshine museum set up in an old mansion. It contains the world's largest moonshine-making apparatus, and also three hall bunkers, because that's where Hitler went personally to plot out his further invasion of the USSR in 1941. But that's for another story. Anyhow, Dimitris and his <clears throat> Kulag family then spent the following four years in the company of nice German officers who totally weren't murdering anyone around and were not persecuting the local populace and friends of everyone, well, those who had survived Stalin's oppression, because they totally did, that was a poor joke, I suppose. Well, whatever. Anyways, that's how little Dimitris learned to speak fluent German as a kid, through always living in fear of being shot by either the Soviet partisans or the national partisans or the German officers that were living in their house. Which is uh, kind of a fun way to spend your childhood from ages 4 to 7. That's important for later on, by the way, because this is where he learns German and in the study this becomes super important. Now, Dimitri's dad regained his workshop for a short while during the German occupation, but uh, understanding that A, Germans will probably lose the war, and B, that the Soviets are going to come back, he sold it, changed his surname, and switched professions, thus making sure that the family escaped the second wave of persecutions in 1949. But, returning to 1945, some nice quotes from Yuris that uh, sort of shows the mentality of the generation who went through the war. Quote, there was still warfare going on in the Kurland pocket, and we and the rest of the ten-year-old kids of Mezhoparks stole and played with every possible gun that we could find in the local arsenal building, which was often left unguarded because of the overarching chaos and because the local guards just didn't care, were shot, or just left their positions to go and rob some stores. And even though this is very dangerous, almost nobody died. Except, you know, two fellows who just loved high explosives, just a smidget, a bit too much. Yeah, that's our future spy talking. By 1949, once everything had calmed down quite a bit, he, as basically everyone else, living in the Soviet Union and the satellite countries, had learned what you could say and what you couldn't, and went to say what things. For example, um, he mentions a candy store, and uh, he states that as his relatives were working in an armaments factory, well, he was given enough pocket exchange to go to a candy store, which was kind of open 
for business at the time, one of the few ones, as the candy sold that it was sort of considered a deficit thing, people got into fights that over the candy. And at some point, when the fight broke out over who would get one of the last kilos of candy for their family, someone stated that, um, hey, are you a human being or are you a uh, militionaire? Which is a, you know, person working for Militia or the Soviet police. And yeah, for that, he was sent for three years in prison. Which is kind of crazy, but if you think about it, at that time, people who hadn't developed the crucial ability to know what to say and when to say it could easily just disappear. And they often did. And often, the sadly, these disappearances were uh, kind of enforced and uh, happened because your neighbors wanted your apartment so they would just report on you and out of their own greed and, you know, they wanted good friends with the KGB. Which happened with his, well, classmates. But our hero of the story and of this book, as is his memoirs, he managed to get through high school through understanding that he probably should keep his mouth shut more often than he, well, spoke. But to be honest here, for a guy who promises in the beginning of this spy boat memoirs to talk about the boat Alexander Pushkin, that on which he actually did the spy work, he does spend a lot of time talking about his high school years, so I'll skip over a few unlucky accidents, street fights, and the like here. They were there in the original script, but oh boy, just had to throw them out. What matters is that because he was from a politically unreliable family, any attempts of getting into a university proved to be utterly futile. And because, well, our friend Yuris had spent quite a bit of time fixing up broken motorcycles, he managed, he managed to get a job in the Riga shipyards as a repair mechanic. Also around the end of the 50s, one of his early grade classmates, who had been sent to Siberia with the whole family, arrived back to Riga and applied for a job in the same shipyard, and they quickly became friends, both having suffered from the Soviet regime and having known each other in the childhood and all that nice stuff. Friend's name was Alexander Thompson, and this... this actually... Is relevant to the story because now we have to switch our attention to the first department of the KGB and the cater department of any large enough factory. See the first department of the KGB had managed to put itself into every cater department of every self-respecting large enough factory and by large enough I mean everywhere where uh, more than three people worked basically. The thing is that what you would call now human resources was called the cater department well, actually, it kind of overlaps with also the law departments and other things like that. But the cater offices, the people who actually hired the people were, well, they always had politically motivated agents there who made sure that everyone who works in the proper Soviet factory were honest to God communists. That's a silly metaphor to use, but you get my point. Anyways, everyone was double checked and triple checked by the people or most likely retired officers from the war and everyone who just went there knew that if they weren't politically pure, they could lose their jobs and be sent off to a nice vacation in Siberia, just as everyone else. And our main hero, due to his friendship with the Thompson's guy, was called in into the first department of the Cater Institution, which is always tied with the first department of the KGB, at the end of 1959. So he was called there 
to um, talk about his nice little connections there and a possible promotion as things happen. And that's the thing. You could get a promotion in these places or you could be basically put up on a train and never be seen again. So, just to paraphrase from the book because he dedicates a whole chapter to all of this story and as one of those interesting cases in history, well, he states that he was asked thoroughly about his own work and how he fared with Thompson's and what was going on and what did he know about him and what was the Thompson's political views and what were his political views. And I just want to quote a little bit here because because otherwise it's um, kind of weird because he was called again the first time he tried to uh, avoid all responses. But um, there was a second time, of course, because, you know, if the KGB is on to you, they will just not let go. Quote, they called me back two weeks later. I went there again. Open the doors and there are only two guys in front of me. By greeting me, they started to demonstratively speak with each other. Well, look at this comrade. He does not want to talk about what kind of people work in his team. What do you mean I don't want to talk about it? Please. And so I named all of my people in my brigade. But what about Thompson? Well, yes, Thompson works here as well. Well, where did he arrive at your place? The cater department sent him. And there uh, the memoirs note that he knew that the Thompson, well, wanted to escape back to Germany. Yeah, by the way, uh, again, due to discrepancies of this book, which is why I have mentioned on Facebook that it's kind of like reading form. the narrative is just written in a way that flashbacks happen within flashbacks, and in this case, apparently, Mr. Thompson, well, all of his family of this Thompson were victims of Stalin's oppression, and he had escaped the only person from his family, from, well, being brutally uh, sent to gulags. So, well, he volunteered for Wehrmacht in uh, 1941, because at that point nobody knew that what terrible things was going on there in Nazi Germany, so he was a so-called legionnaire. And then, well, he decided to repatriate from the West Germany to Soviet Union, as this was his home, which he later really regretted, because why would you ever go back there? Well, he was a part of a regular army. He joined up with uh, Hitler's forces, because, like, literally everyone else in his family were sent to gulags by Stalin, and then this Thompson's guy decides to go through a filtration camp and repatriate to uh, Soviet Latvia, but, of course, he has some ties to the German Secret Service, which this guy, the main hero of our story, does not know about just yet. He just knows that he's a friend, that he's coming from a family with whom everyone's been, like, you know, sent to gulags. This is why this is a mess, and this is why it took so long to produce, but, but just stay with me here. It's gonna get there eventually. <clears throat> but Thompson, they asked me. Well, yes, Thompson works as well. Well, where did you arrive with Thompson? The cater department sent this to me. Well, we still would want to know your opinion about Mr. Thompson. Well, like I said, he's a very good, uh, very good employee that you could learn some things from him. Ha! But can he only work? But can he also drink vodka? Which is, um, obviously a, well, nice little thing how to evaluate people, if they can or cannot hold their own in vodka drinking. He can also drink vodka. 
Well, look at this. Other people get totally wasted and then don't come to work. But Thompson, Thompson gets shit-faced and wasted, but, you know, comes to work the next day anyways. Well, look at this. This whole thing seems sort of strange. We would like to talk about this little thing with you a bit some more. Now there's a little something that um, every family in Latvia or in the Baltics can relate to. The nice response of this guy to his, well, sort of friendly, sort of not friendly, KGB questionnaires and interrogators in the first department. Quote, If you want to talk about this subject, then come to my brigade. We'll talk there. I am a leader of the Komsomol Brigade. We have earned the first place flag. I got a premium for the last quarter. What else do you want? Well, that's all nice, but we are uh, concerned about your political views. And that is, um, the response to this is really a uh, describing part about, well, everything that happened there and how you could gain KGB's attention well enough to actually go on a boat there. Because, well, I wouldn't be picking out these moments from this memoir uh, with such carefulness if some of them didn't matter more than others. And this response, I believe, even though the author of the book, of the memoirs, doesn't really believe it, so I believe that the answer to the question he was just asked really um, ensures that uh, he got the interest of the KGB agents, of the people who wanted to get him involved into this whole spycraft business. Quote, I don't have any political views. If you wish to acquire my ideas about politics, then go visit my grandpa to Krasnoyarsk. Ask there. He's lying there two meters under the ground. By the way, that's about six feet. See ya, literally. And then he just walked outside. Now, in the book, this is represented as nonchalantly, he just, you know, left the, uh, left the cabinet or something. And this is when I started to fact-check everything. Because you can't just walk out of the KGB uh, discussion there. But apparently, um, as I'm reading from a first-hand account, and another reason why all of this has been so long, is that, yeah, it wasn't formally KGB. It was just that the first cater department of every facility was run by the KGB, and everyone knew that, but it wasn't technically the same office. So I presume that even though I don't exactly believe that his response to these questions was as audacious as he puts it here, I do believe that he had managed to just be audacious enough, yet still obfuscating enough, and, you know, just preserving his face enough, because you couldn't, as a KGB officer, arrest someone who was um, part of the Komsomol, which he had to, because otherwise he wouldn't have gotten any jobs whatsoever, you know, being a part of a family that has been persecuted by the Soviets already, so he had to take part of this whole uh, matter. I do believe that he managed to get some audacious snap and just, you know, be allowed to leave, instead of leaving himself, of course. But in the end, I believe that this, this is what caught the KGB's attention to him. And oh boy, we're finally gonna get him on the boat, you guys. 
Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media like Twitter where we are known as Eastern underscore Border and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. After these two talks, our hero Yuris Dimitris reports that, long story short, he was contacted by the KGB twice more, and eventually he was kind of, you know, pushed away just from his high school education to get the university one. He uh, established himself in the University of Latvia in the Faculty of Law. But the thing is that as he spoke fluent German... And as he really wanted to go into the sea, as he was, you know, obsessed with ships at that point, working in a um, ship repair factory at that point, and he was influenced by the KGB agents who acquired him these places. And, well, if you've listened to my episode about how the KGB operated, you might have learned about how these methods worked. He got a lot of promises about how the rest of his family would not be touched and how he could personally survive all through this ordeal and be useful to not only the Soviet country, but to, well, the Latvian people in general. And playing on his patriotic feelings and his own wishes for the well-being of him and his family, he sort of agreed. But what's important here, before we get him on the boat, because, you know, he goes through the law faculty, uh, he kind of gets asked to go on a boat, because of some friends of his father, who now live in Germany, and they're tied to Thompsons. But all of those studies are very complex, and we're getting on to them, but, um... Still, why this episode is hard to make is because of the constant flashbacks, and one of these flashbacks is so important that I would like to relay them now, because if we're talking about the first department of the Cater Department, and the first department of the KGB, is the fact that the main person of the KGB 
in Latvia, according to this guy, and uh, I have triple checked all the sources here, the fact is that, again, see, at the beginning, I had a very dismissive view at Yuris Dimitris because we recently opened our uh, so-called check a supporter bags and everything and his name is on it but he states that the people were different there and some people were persuaded some people really were sort of evil and worked with the kgb and some people just happened there and he decides to explain everything this book reads basically kind of like crying memoirs of uh, someone who's you know dealing with his own morality and the fact that he's trying to do the moral thing at all times and he states here that, quote, The main person on the first department was the Kater Inspector Novozhilov. He used to be one of the main inspectors of the Far East politically imprisoned gulags. Basically, he was one of the chiefs of gulag system. After the death of Stalin, Novozhilov in 1953 was forced to run away not only from Siberia, but even from, at that point, Russian Soviet state which is, you know, the largest state of the Soviet Union, but still, is the Russian Soviet state. And he had to run away so far that he managed to end up even in Riga. This communist that, again, quote, overcome by the orthodox revolutionary ideas. Yeah, this was uh, basically, he was an orthodox revolutionary, kind of a Trotskyist even. And the problem is, and his escape was tied to a simple fact. KGB did not guard the gulags, but instead the other officers tied to the internal security system. They took various people uh, in their security services. Both the fanatical communists, the people who believed in socialism and communism, like, honestly believed that it was the best system on the planet and the everyone who disagreed with them were um, pal people, therefore they deserved to get starved to death and or shot. And they also took people who were utter sadists, those who really, you know, had pleasure from torturing people, killing people, and making sure that they do not see the light of the day. In the guard sections of gulags, often the communists with very sadistical tendencies were serving. It was just crazy. And this Novozhilo, who happened to, at, at Dimitristein, to be the chief of the first department, yeah, he also was a bloodthirsty maniac of this sort. He, according to Dimitris, had drunk enough of the prisoners' blood. The prisoners who had managed to stay alive from the bloodthirst of Zhilov very much remembered him. Even his mentally normal colleagues in the internal security system very well remembered Novozhilov and thought that he reflected very bad on the whole system because even in the KGB, not everyone was a bloodthirsty maniac. That was just, you know, a little bonus for the job. And of course, everyone knew about his bloody tendencies. The Soviet power respected their own. The person, well, had served the Soviet power, therefore they gave him, in his elderly days, a uh, pension job, which is basically some sort of, you know, human resources stuff, and they somewhat forgot about his sadism. But in the end, yeah, that too did not really end well for him. See, at the end of the 50s, when all these people started coming back, Mechanic from Vladivostok, Ivan Smirnov, who also came to Riga because Riga was the most open place in the whole Soviet system back then, he wanted a job in Riga and he had to go, you know, to this human resources cater department to give in his passport and everything and give some documents in. 
and Navajilov, while looking at his passport and other documents and his, uh, well, didn't have CVs back then, but just, you know, reports of employment and all that stuff, he noticed that this man had been in the gulag, which were basically one of the documents upon which he got his passport on. Well, Mr. Novozhilov understood that, hey, this mechanic, he had been in a gulag that I had been a guard for. So, he basically said to this guy, to this Ivan Smirnov, that, well, fuck you, you traitor to the communist country, screw you, I am very sorry that I didn't murder you, you should die and all of your family should die, fuck off and die. This is not an exaggeration, this is exactly what's written in the memoirs, and apparently these are the stories that went through the KGB agency, because, well, at this point, Mr. Dimitris is part of the agency, because he has told the KGB to fuck off, the KGB gave him benefits, and put him in the agents network, and now we're here, and I'm telling you this story, and oh my god, I... I uh, this gets more coherent with time, trust me. So, basically... After Novozhilov tells uh, this Ivanov to fuck off, Mr. Ivanov just waits a bit of time outside the office until Novozhilov just walks outside of it. And then when Novozhilov walks out, Ivanov stabs him in the gut a couple of times, but obviously as he wasn't carrying a combat knife, he just stabs him in the guts a couple of times with a pocket knife, which apparently saved Novozhilov's life. And then something very strange happened, which is put as an example of why in the KGB, even in those days, you know, there were some people who were not utter maniacs, who instead were decent human beings. And, well, even though they served the Soviet country, they were not interested into murdering everything that was walking around. This guy, the mechanic, in Stalin's letter, he would have been shot or would have gotten life in prison, but he got a suspended sentence. Because it was said that, well, he had been in the state of effect and pure hatred, because at that point the Soviet court even stated that Novozhilov had humiliated the prisoners, making them, stacking them up into basically a pyramids of naked people and walking all over them, and shot people at random in columns of prisoners, and basically, well, Novozhilov was a gigantic pile of garbage. The problem is that our little hero of the show, Mr. Dimitris, had managed to, you know, after all these random infringements and everything and his rebellious responses to the KGB, he had managed to get on the boat by talking to Novozhilov before this incident and his near death. The problem was that Mr. Thompson's apparently was suspected to be an agent of the West German uh, spy network, and that Mr. Thompson's and uh, Dimitris had a common friend called Schirmans, who was known to Dimitris' family. So, to try to get Thompson's on some sort of a, you know, lawful detail about his work, to get this Dimitris guy, who's our hero, to get Schirmans to work for the KGB and to make sure that they had a valid reason for the Thompson's arrests. That's how Dimitris gets on the spy boat. Well, to be frank, before that spy boat, he served another one called Burja, which was a smaller boat that traveled from Germany to Soviet Union and back. And the Dimitris' first trip was really going to Hamburg, checking out on how uh, Alexander Pushkin was fixed up and built 
and he was told that he had to spend 10 days in Hamburg. And that comes over, like, this book has so many dialogues which are total nonsense and direct quotes that I can't even stand them myself. But basically, at about one quarter of the book, he goes to Hamburg for 10 days on the boat where he's being told that he's going to be looked at. Well, he understands that implicitly about, you know, how he's going to take care of himself before he can manage to go further on. So he goes to Hamburg on a smaller boat that's going to oversee the construction of the bigger actual cruise that he's going to spend his career on. And uh, I'm going to quote him here. Quote, We went to Hamburg. We were stated that we're going to spend 10 days here. At that point, they wanted to make a revision of the new ship, fill it up, also form some guarantee, you know, guarantee safety documents. And I had a nice option to go to the city. Now, a Soviet sailor going out on the shore in foreign countries was closely tied to an instruction about how the Soviet sailor should act upon, you know, hitting foreign soils. In the Cold War, the world was split up very easily. The good ones and the bad ones. The good ones was Soviet Union and other lands of the glorious socialism and countries, well, friendly to the Soviet Union. The evil people was everyone else more easily stated as imperialists, according to Soviet propaganda. Hamburg, a territory of the German Federative Republic, was obviously imperialists or the evil guys. And according to the instructions, sailors should walk around the imperialist territory in squads of three. Why they should walk around, well, you know, in the squads of three, the instructions didn't really mention. However, you could basically understand why. To allow a Soviet sailor to walk around just with another Soviet sailor is dangerous. What if one of them loses their attentiveness and starts to say to the Imperials about the Soviet secrets? And the other one could, um, <clears throat> of course, withstand such assaults uh, of evil and, you know, make sure that the other comrade is going on the right route, but not for a long time. It's easier to create a conspiracy if there's two of you. It's way harder if there's three of you. Therefore, the hopes that, well, at least one of the three um, will actually be a reasonable Soviet citizen and obviously report the other two guys to the responsive and corresponding Soviet authorities was, well, quite larger than if they would be just allowed to walk in pairs. So the conspiracy is harder to do. But honestly speaking, honestly speaking, as I've uh, asked other people who actually went on boats at the time, and as this book writes as well, it would be very laughable if Soviet sailors just walked around the room in their threes. They follow the instructions for about three blocks each, and then they split up and just decide, just talked about when they're going to unite back up. And of course, our hero, Mr. Dimitris, the first time when before he stepped out in Hamburg, got a detailed instruction where he should go, where he shouldn't go. And he obviously did take it to heart, but in the first day, but in the following day, he just went there where he totally shouldn't really go. And he writes that he went through the famous Hamburg perversion district, San Pauli. I haven't been there, so I can't really comment, but if you live in Hamburg, please let me know if that thing even exists. His task was to connect the Sherman. And uh, the KGB had given him 100 West German Deutschmarks for this thing. 
and he, to get rid of his other comrades, who weren't working for the KGB at the time, gave them a bunch of Deutschmarks and told them that he's gonna go and uh, do his own little business. At that point, he was figuring out what the hell to do and maybe to get away. Because getting away is always a useful option. And he had a nice little phone number acquired from Thompson's about the Sherman guy whom he would need to contact for some certain interest of Thompson's. Now, the thing is that this is the point where Mr. Dimitris decided not to escape from the Soviet Union, but rather to work within the system and try to destroy it from within. And let me tell you, this covers about 200 pages from the book in this whole episode. So, this is going to be where we cut off this time. But in the next episode, we're going to talk about Mr. Sherman, Mr. Dimitris' contacts with... Well, young, confused minds, contacting, working for the KGB to contact the Sherman guy and being, you know, required, recruited as an agent for the West German Secret Service. Thank you, guys, and до свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.